0: This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, we'll speak with Layla Lalami, the nation columnist. We'll talk about her novel, The Other Americans. It's about the suspicious death of a Moroccan immigrant in a small town in California. It's a family saga, a murder mystery, and a love story. And it's out now in paperback. Also, the Cold War was fought in many ways. It was a traditional political and military confrontation, but it was also a cultural contest on a global scale. And one of the most important arenas in that cultural contest was sports. Historian Bob Edelman will explain. He's co-editor of the new book, The Whole World Was Watching, Sport in the Cold War. But first, big political news this week. Of course, Bernie dropped out, and the Republicans forced Wisconsin to go ahead with an election despite the coronavirus. For that, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation, and his new book will be published on May 7th. It's called The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. We reached him today at home in Madison. John, welcome back. It's great to be with you. Well, I I said the Republicans forced Wisconsin to go ahead with the election. Which Republicans are we talking about? The bad Republicans.
1: (laughs) Um, (laughs) And you know what? We can actually make the distinction, John, which is sort of interesting. Um, 15 states have decided that uh, science is real and that you shouldn't go ahead with public gatherings, you know, in, in a period of pandemic. Uh, and so many of those states are led by Republicans. And so uh, the state of Maryland, as a Republican governor, they delayed their election. The state of Ohio has a Republican governor. He delayed his election in exactly the same way that the governor of Wisconsin, a Democrat, tried to do. Um, Wisconsin was the only state that ended up having to go ahead with an election. It wasn't because the governor, Tony Evers, wanted it to go ahead. It wasn't because civil rights groups wanted it to go ahead. It wasn't because voting rights groups wanted it to go ahead. It wasn't because the mayors of the major cities across Wisconsin wanted it to go ahead. It wasn't because epidemiologists wanted it to go ahead. (laughs) It wasn't because public health people wanted it to go ahead. It was because two Republican leaders in the state legislature – State Assembly Speaker Robin Boss and State Senate Majority Leader Scott Fitzgerald, who are in their positions solely because of the gerrymandering of legislative districts that has allowed them to maintain their power even when more people vote for Democrats for the legislature, decided that they would block every move by the governor and by state officials to create a fair and functional and safe election. And unfortunately— They were backed up by the state Supreme Court and by the U.S. Supreme Court, in each case with majorities made up only of right-wingers appointed by Republican presidents uh, or governors, you know, in the case of Wisconsin, a little bit more of a complexity there. But the simple reality is that uh, you end up with uh, a situation where in Wisconsin, unlike all the other states that are, you know, were set to vote in this time, People who tried but could not successfully get an absentee ballot as well as people who did not get access to an absentee ballot in in, just the broader sense were forced on the morning of Tuesday, April 7th to decide whether they would follow orders to stay at home and protect themselves from a global pandemic or leave their homes in order to exercise their right to vote. It was and tell horrific. us, t-
0: tell us, uh, <clears throat> you're on the ground there, tell us what, what was it like for the people who went out on Tuesday, who went to their neighborhood polling places?
1: Well, there weren't many neighborhood polling places because um, overwhelmingly poll workers uh, signaled that they were not, not going to work on April 7th. Not because they didn't believe in it, uh, but I don't know if you've gone to a polling place recently. Um, poll workers tend to be older folks. Yeah. Um, and many of them have pre-existing conditions and um, and challenges where literally, I I've talked to poll workers whose doctors told them they could not work the polls. And oh. uh, this is a reality across uh, the state of Wisconsin. And you had a situation where some of the uh, biggest uh, cities in the state had to dramatically reduce reduce their number of polling places. I'll give you an example. In Milwaukee, a city of around 600,000 people, which traditionally has 180 polling places. I mean, besides that, 180 polling places, it was reduced to five.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And in Green Bay, where they had dozens of polling places, it was reduced. Five
0: polling places out of 100 In Milwaukee.
1: In Milwaukee. In Green Bay, it was reduced to two. Uh, In in Waukesha, a city of 75,000 with a large Latino population, Um, It was reduced to one. Um, And so across the state, people were forced not merely to make the hard choice to go and vote, but in case after case after case, to have to travel much farther than they usually do, to find a polling place which was different than their usual polling place, and then, tragically in this moment, to go to a spot that was crowded with a lot of people because you know, there was so, such a reduction in the number of, of places to vote. In Milwaukee, people got up before dawn, sometimes rode city buses across the city to their polling place and then got in line and waited as long as two and a half hours. In Green Bay, they waited as long as three hours. They did try to socially distance. Uh, there was it really it, the stories of incredible resilience in this regard. But to give you a sense of, of how bad it was and what people were forced to do entirely unnecessarily. Because they could have done all absentee voting. They could have done mail voting. They could have done what every other state has done. But what they were forced to do was so overwhelming. Uh, I'll give you just a couple of examples. Please. The long wait in line um, continued through the day. So people were waiting two, three hours through much of the day, even into the evening. And at night, it started to rain. And then severe thunderstorms came. And then it started to hail. And these are, you know, oh, no. quarter-sized uh, pieces of hail coming down in some of these communities. Uh. And people stood. They stood that line. They, they were out there with garbage bags and ma- handmade, homemade masks, um, mm. you know, wearing winter gloves to try and protect themselves. And, and voting. Many of the polling places didn't close till late into the evening. My daughter worked a polling place um, in, in Madison, where it was much, much more, much more functional, I think, than in some places. Um, but she didn't get home till 11 o'clock. Polls closed at eight. Um, okay. And so wow. this was a, a a stunning reality. And I'll give you just one more story of uh, a woman I interviewed, um, Gretchen Fenema. She's a she's in her 40s and she works as a, a banquet manager in a in a restaurant kind of place. And she's laid off. She's, like so many people, out of work at this point. Um, and she has a dad who's in, in his 70s, and he has bronchitis. And she and her dad applied for their absentee ballots early and waited and waited and waited. Across the state, there were cases where, because of the delayed mails and that, they just didn't come. Uh, federal judges and Wisconsin, responsible Wisconsin officials had tried to extend the absentee balloting, The U.S. Supreme Court shut down absentee ballot voting with their ruling as of Tuesday night. So people couldn't wait for their ballots and get them cast when they arrived. Um, And so on Tuesday morning, she and her dad in his 70s with bronchitis, obviously one of the most vulnerable possible people, um, literally wrapped themselves up, put on handmade masks, got in their car. And drove to the polling places. They had to wait in line. You know, They did what was called curbside voting. Because if you are a very vulnerable person, you could do this. They waited in line for more than a half hour. Uh, they cast their ballots. And as they pulled away, Gretchen Fenema took one of those little I voted stickers and put it on her mask. Mm-hmm. And she took a picture of herself with her middle finger raised. Oh. And sent it out uh, as a message to the Republican Party of Wisconsin.
0: Oh. Well, I understand that there were specific proposals made by the Democrats about what to do, not just postpone the election, we'll do this some other time. But they had a plan. What was the plan?
1: Well, this is the important thing to understand. And it's worth paying attention to, because as everyone I talked to said, this is this is something we could well see in November in in every other state in states across the country. So in in mid-March, when Governor Evers, uh, a Democrat, uh, proposed having a statewide lockdown, statewide stay at home, uh, he started talking about the election. He said, you know, this is going to be a complexity. We're going to have to figure out how to do this. And he said, I would like the election to go ahead. I'd like to do it, but we just have to figure out a way to do it. And he started trying to negotiate with the Republicans in the legislature. They refused to do so. And. You know, they kept wrangling on this issue for day after day, week after week. And remember, this is at a time when folks were also literally trying to deal with public health crises and all the other issues, the economic crisis that's going on. But the governor kept pushing to try and get the election straightened out, to try and do something right. Um, Finally, uh, a bunch of mayors sued in the courts. And a federal judge brought down a ruling. He said, I can't change the election date. I can't move the date what i can do is extend absentee balloting for a week and it really open up a window and and to the judge's credit that was something but the judge said this is absurd this election shouldn't go forward in this in this form and so he basically challenged the legislature and the governor to get it right to do the right thing so the governor then at that point um, basically developed a plan and the plan was to not do in-person voting in Wisconsin on Tuesday. Don't make people wait in those lines. But extend absentee balloting into, initially he said May, eventually he said the start of June, but to do what every other state, I should say most other states are doing, which is simply close down in-person voting and then have uh, you know some sort of down-the-line extended absentee balloting and mail voting. That's what, for instance, Ohio is doing the exact same thing with a Republican governor putting that in. And um and yeah. he proposed this. The, the le- he called the legislature into a special session on Saturday. Um they gabbled in and gabbled out five seconds later. They refused they mocked him. They literally made fun of him for doing this proposal. Oh. Then on Monday he called oh. them again. They again mocked him and refused to act when it was totally possible to act. The mayors, everybody was ready to, you know, transition to the next move. Um Then the governor finally did order uh, for public health purposes, said, we can't go ahead with in-person voting. We're going to go to this different approach. The Republicans uh, brought immediate action. Their allies, close allies on the state Supreme Court, backed them up, blocked the governor's move. And then the U.S. Supreme Court came in and mangled the federal judges' attempt to (laughs) extend absentee voting. And so we ended up in this chaos situation. There is no question. People were disenfranchised. People who were immunochallenged, who uh, are immunocompromised who asked for absentee ballots, the ballots did not arrive, they could not go to the polls. Um, there are people who followed the rules, who actually got an absentee ballot, filled it out the way they were supposed to, but because of the U.S. Supreme Court intervention, the way they did it was disqualified. Um, it, it's just, I cannot begin to tell you that we saw the entire machinery of voter suppression come into full force and, as the state chair of the Democratic Party said, to weaponize the coronavirus pandemic as a tool to make it harder for people to vote. <clears throat> now,
0: there are <clears throat> some people who haven't followed this story too closely are puzzled by the fact that the Republicans have been so fierce about what is Basically, the Democratic primary, what did they care how many people in Wisconsin vote for Bernie? Actually, there is a reason why they care about the day of the
1: Democratic primary. Tell us about that. Sure. Um, A lot of national media focused on this as a presidential primary, Um, as they have on many of the other states that have delayed voting. Um, That is almost irrelevant. Uh, The Republicans didn't care at all about the Democratic primary. Um, or even their own primary, because the Republican Party of Wisconsin had blocked uh, Donald Trump's challengers from the ballot. Um, so Trump's is the only name on the Republican ballot. So it wasn't it wasn't about that. It was about a state Supreme Court race in Wisconsin. Wisconsin has an elected nonpart- supposedly nonpartisan state Supreme Court. It was a very close race. Our recent races have often been close on this issue. And um, it was a race between a judge, extremely right-wing judge, appointed by uh, former Governor Scott Walker, and a judge from Dane County, a woman who uh, had been actually elected to the judiciary and was a well-regarded candidate. And the Republicans, I, I, I just don't think there's any question that they thought they would have a better shot at it, that their things would come up better for them if they forced this election. Um, now, people can differ on that issue, and I'm sure they would you know, ask us to read their souls, and, and I prefer not mm-hmm. to do that. Uh, But I I will just tell you that that's certainly what the assumption of a lot of people is in Wisconsin, that they put crass political motivations ahead of public health and public safety. And incredibly enough, the Republican Speaker of the State Assembly went out and said, oh, it's so safe. I'm going to go work the polls myself. And there's video of him wearing basically head to toe protective gear, a mask, gloves (laughs) and everything else saying Oh, yeah, look how safe it is. Yeah. You know, it, it, it was you couldn't, you literally couldn't make this stuff up.
0: Of course, Trump explains things differently. He said recently, I quote, In Wisconsin, what happened is that I, through social media, put out a very strong endorsement of a Republican conservative judge who's an excellent, brilliant judge, and I hear what happened is his poll numbers went through the roof, close quote. And that's why the Democrats wanted to delay the election, Trump concluded. Uh, I wonder if you have any comments on, on, on this uh, alternative scenario.
1: Well, first off, I'm not people are kind of um, working on some other issues right now, like <laughs> trying to protect their health, stay alive, figure out what they're going to do with the collapsed economy. Um, and so I'm not sure everybody was waiting for the president's Trump in Wisco- or president's tweet in Wisconsin. Um, <laughs> but uh, here's here. And, and I don't want to suggest that my president is stupid. Right. Um, Never. Or something like that, because too many people <laughs> say things like that. But let me just offer you a notion here. Where was where was the election most severely impacted by, you know, I- in this situation? Right. Um, It's in Milwaukee, in the city of Milwaukee. And Milwaukee is an overwhelmingly Democratic city. It's in other Democratic cities around the state. Um, The key to a lot of the Democratic turnout strategies historically has been in-person voting. Um, You know, people mobilizing, coming to the polls. The governor, a Democrat, proposed shutting down in-person voting. And going to an all-male absentee balloting system that most analysts say benefits the Republicans, or at least tend historically to have a lot of older voters and a lot of yeah. more conservative voters. So, despite what the president says, nothing about what happened on, you know, on April seventh, to my view, benefited nothing. What the governor was proposing benefited Democrats. It was a public health initiative, but what the Republicans did definitely benefited their conservative choice for the Supreme Court, or at least they think it did. We'll see how the the votes turn out. So the president is fundamentally wrong about this um, on on so many levels. And if I can emphasize one other thing, in the 2018 election in Wisconsin where we had a Supreme Court race – I apologize – Yes, 2018, uh, we had a state Supreme Court race where uh, the woman who was running for the court uh, as a progressive um, actively signaled that she was campaigning as a critic of Donald Trump. Um, she actually put up you know, images of her at the Women's March uh, and at, uh. at rallies criticizing Trump, and she won. In November of 2018, every statewide candidate who was associated with Donald Trump uh, in the Senate race, in the governor's race, and all the other contests, was defeated. And so there's pretty good evidence to suggest um, that that the president's endorsement isn't currently carrying a lot of weight. <laughs> um, and again, the Republicans could have compromised and worked with the governor. He was hundred percent ready to come up with some plan maybe for a a more limited period of absentee voting for, you know, some structure. He simply wanted to create a circumstance where people could cast their ballots from home rather than being forced to leave their home and go and participate in in in-person voting. Um, And the Republicans had every opportunity to make that work in a way that that they might have thought was more favorable to them. Instead, they simply said no.
0: Well, in our last three or four minutes here, uh, I want to switch the focus to Bernie, who, of course, withdrew from the race this week. You've known Bernie Sanders for many years. You've interviewed him dozens of times. What's your perspective on his campaign coming to an end?
1: Um, I, think it's, I think for a lot of people who uh, believed in what he was doing, there was an element of sadness. Um, by the same token, as he said in his announcement, uh, he was suspending his campaign. His name will remain on the ballot and in the dozens of states that are still to vote. And my suspicion is he'll still get a lot of votes. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a lot of a lot of people who really do uh, have a great faith in him and a great uh, interest in his candidacy. Um, I will tell you this. It was very, very hard for Bernie Sanders to decide to uh, suspend his campaign. I talked to him several times in a big interview that we put up at the Nation website with him a few days before. And he expressed profound frustration with not being able to be out and campaign uh, with you know, the reality of w- this radical transformation of, of our, our world and, uh, and of our lives. But truthfully, he put that much more in a box. Most of the conversations I've had with him, and they were quite long. Uh, we're about the coronavirus pandemic, about the economic crisis and about the policy initiatives that must be made to to get us out of this, about the dangers of the, this moment and frankly dangers that exist in the future and I, I have to say, and i 'm not trying to read his mind or, or something like that, my sense is that Bernie Sanders simply decided that um, he wanted to put all of his energy on on literally a fight for the future, not just of our health, but also our economics and determined that a presidential race wasn't, wasn't the way to do it. Um, it, I think it was hard for him, but, uh, but one that, that at the end of the day, I can say with quite a great deal of certainty was a decision that he felt was, was right and necessary. And it's notable that within minutes of when he suspended his campaign, uh, his Senate office put out a, a massive, uh, program, for uh how to address the economic crisis and i, I don't i guess the best way to say this I, I don't think for a second that we've heard the last of him. my sense is yeah he's going to be very central
0: so he he bernie does say the struggle must continue uh and he did release this huge uh program but w- what are the priorities what are the next steps for the movement that uh for bernie created that you know the uh-huh. nation magazine has been part of
1: well, at least supportive of his candidacy. Um, look, uh, I, there's, a, there's a guy named Benjamin Dixon who's a podcaster um, who's very, very popular with a lot of Bernie supporters. And his tweet that he's got pinned to the top of his Twitter feed is, thank you, Bernie, we'll take it from here. Yeah. And, um, and it's interesting. I think a lot of the, the electoral movement, the political movement itself, um uh, will continue in many states to urge people to vote for Sanders and to pile up Sanders delegates uh, to push for a progressive uh, platform, to push for a progressive vice presidential nominee, uh, to keep kind of pushing Joe Biden, the nominee, the expected yes. nominee to the left. I think you're going to see that. But I also think that you are going to see um, what I think is the most important in many ways, the most important part of all this. You will see this rising generation of political figures, people that Bernie Sanders inspired and encouraged to go into politics, began to step up more and more. And the fact of the matter is, I always tell people that if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez waits for 40 years to make a presidential run, if she sits through the next 10 presidential cycles,
0: (laughs) she will still be
1: younger than Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders. And so the truth of the matter is there is a there are so many rising figures who will carry this movement forward and carry these ideas forward and they will become more and more necessary so we can be a little bit discouraged by one candidate standing down. But what Bernie Sanders has said to me many times is um, not me, us. And the fact is the us um, are going to define our future.
0: John Nichols, read him at the nation.com. John, it's always great to have you
1: on the show. Pleasure, my friend. Thanks so much for having me.
0: It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at TrumpWatchPodcast.com. The Cold War was fought in many ways. It was a traditional political and military confrontation, but it was also a cultural contest on a global scale, and one of the most important arenas in the cultural contest was sports. For that, we turn to Robert Edelman. He teaches Russian history at UC San Diego. His books include an award-winning history of spectator sports in the Soviet Union. And he assembled a winning team of more than a dozen historians to collaborate on research in the history of sport in the Cold War. The fruits of their work are now published in a book titled The Whole World Was Watching, Sport in the Cold War. Bob Edelman, welcome back.
2: It's great to hear you.
0: The U.S. and the USSR always competed in the Olympics starting in 1952, which was the first year the Soviets entered the Olympics. And whoever won the most medals gained immense prestige. Sports, unlike a lot of other East-West cultural competitions, music or film or literature, made it a lot easier to know who was ahead and who was behind. But you say different kinds of states produce different kinds of sporting systems. And indeed, the Americans always complained that the Soviet dictatorship had significant advantages in producing top athletes.
2: Is that really true? It's true if you limit the practices of sport to the Olympic Games. In fact, the Olympics were a very distorting kind of uh, terrain or platform for measuring things. So I would argue that the Olympics uh, made the United States look weaker than it really was and the Soviet Union stronger than it really was, despite the preponderance of medal victories uh, in a variety or a number of different Olympic games. Well,
0: American domination, you know, of everything in the world seemed to Americans to be natural and normal. How did they explain losses to the Soviets at the Olympics or defeats at the hands of the East Germans? Cheating! <laughs> <laughs> okay. Was there, how much truth was there to the charge that the East Germans were doping their athletes and that the Soviets were cheating too?
2: Lots of truth. The main complaint, the main issue before the uh, Soviets were allowed into the games was that it was well known, it was no secret that their athletes were being paid. Uh, and that the problem with the Olympics is that it's a sporting activity which was at that time restricted to amateurs. And that has roots in Victorian England and the emergence of modern sport, which came from elite public schools. They were called public schools, but they were really private schools. And those sports were things like rugby and cricket, and then later soccer, that uh, eventually attracted large working class audiences. And in order to limit the uh, rise of this uh, working class sport, the creator of the Olympics, Baron Pierre de Coubertin, created a competition which would only be open to those who could afford to train on their own and had the leisure. So when along come the Soviets, who are in fact supported by either jobs that they don't have to show up for, or they're army officers, or sports instructors, or policemen, or students, then they seem to, of course, undermine this notion of the amateur code. So there's a great deal of uncertainty about bringing the Soviets into the Olympics at that particular time. They eventually do. The Olympics people hold their nose because the competition between the Soviet Union and the United States sold tickets and gained attention for their movement, which of course expanded enormously in its footprint once the Cold War in sport was joined.
0: And- to what extent was international sport during the Cold War a contest between the United States and the Soviet Union that left other countries out of the picture?
2: I would argue that the Olympics are a bad arena for evaluating the sporting activities of any one of these countries and that I also would also argue that the Notion that the Olympics comprised all of Cold War sport is massively insufficient. Among other things, it reaffirms this idea that the Cold War was a bipolar struggle simply between two superpowers. And I am more attracted to the idea that uh, this was a multipolar competition between two globalization projects, capitalism and communism. And those groups, those organizations, those blocks were not entirely monolithic. But the other big problem, of course, is that if you limit the version of sport that you're looking at or the kinds of sports you're looking at to the Olympic competition, you're emphasizing the bipolar Cold War, which was, of course, between the United States and the Soviet Union, between the two superpowers, which was kept cold by nuclear standoff. Now that, of course, meant that people justified the military confrontation by saying that the Cold War stayed cold because of nuclear war. But it ignores the fact that in the global south, there were literally tens of millions of people who died in proxy wars from Guatemala to Iran to uh, obviously Vietnam, Korea, and other places. So to say that the Cold War was a peaceful time in human history is simply false.
0: One more thing about the Olympics. Part of the politics of the Olympics was of course the boycotts the first Olympics in the Soviet Union was Moscow 1980 and the western countries boycotted those Olympics because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Four years later, the Soviets refused to come to Los Angeles. How important were the boycotts and what were the Olympics like when one of the superpowers was missing? Did that create more room for the other countries to compete or did that just make the whole thing less meaningful?
2: Well, it was quite interesting. Obviously, the United States and many other NATO countries did not take part in Moscow in 1980, but Great Britain did. And they had numerous, uh, especially very big successes in track and field. But crazily enough, one of these British English people won the 100 meters, Alan Wells, at the Olympic Games in 1980. So it did create opportunities in 1980 for people who would normally not be on the medal podium. On the other hand, you had a situation in 1984 where Romania, a communist country, chose to participate and came in second in the medal cup, which, of course, you normally would not have expected outside of Fields like Gymnastics. So, yes, it gave opportunities for others who uh, had not been dominant to find a place.
0: I think we, we
2: have to talk about
0: race, which, of course, is a huge issue in American sports. And, of course, the Cold War was a time... Not just of the civil rights movement in the United States, but also of decolonization, crumbling empires, wars for independence in what we call the third world. How was that process in international sports during the Cold War?
2: Well, the one thing it was not was the idea that you had this, again, bipolar competition with the third world sitting in a sort of imaginary south stand deciding who won the pole vault in 1976 this fantasy where the prime minister of Ghana calls in the minister of agriculture and says, well, what should we do? Should we privatize agriculture or should we collectivize? And the minister of sports says, well, have you checked the sports pages yet? You know. <laughs> Somehow, I don't think this happened. But this general notion was that the belief would be that if you had such athletes that seemed so admirable and so uh, attractive, that this would then attract the loyalty and support of the world's citizens and their sympathies, the famous notion of hearts and minds. I don't really feel it worked that way and to see it that way eliminates the agency of the people in, again, the third world, who, again, as you've said, were people of color. And so the fact that this decolonization project is very much part of what goes on During the Cold War, it's not identical by any means, but it informs and expands the territory of the Cold War enormously. And there, the United States was fighting with two hands behind its back because of its racial issues in the United States, which the Third World was very sensitive to, and which the Soviet bloc constantly reminded the Third World about.
0: This takes us to baseball, and now it's time for... Your Minnesota Moment, that's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. We're recording this interview as pitchers and catchers report for spring training. Your book has a section on Cold War baseball in the Caribbean. I learned there that Fidel Castro threw out the first pitch in game seven of the Little World Series in 1959. The Little World Series is where the winners of the top minor league teams played. In 1959, it was the Havana Sugar Kings of the International League against the champions of the American Association, the Minneapolis Millers. Cuba was wild for baseball at that time. They produced championship teams. So let's talk about the role of players of color from the Caribbean in American baseball as a part of international Cold War sports.
2: I agree completely. So the relationship of organized baseball, as it was called, or Major League Baseball, to the Caribbean was that of either colonialism or neocolonialism. And there were very strong leagues, especially in Cuba, which were interracial, but also uh, in Uh, other parts in Venezuela to Mexico and points in between, where people, among other things, from the Negro Leagues in the United States actually played during the winter. And so these leagues were a kind of in the late 40s to early 50s, around the time that Jackie Robinson is integrating baseball, are giving a sort of view of what the future would look like. And all the fans and Uh, other sporting activists are looking at this thing, looking at this situation, and wondering when is the big leagues, when are they gonna integrate? And of course, it happens with Jackie Robinson in 1947, allow me to say since you're invoking home teams with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And uh, that was an important moment. And in particular, when the Dodgers continue to attract and recruit black players, and they finally defeat the New York Yankees in 1955, they were largely lily white, the Yankees, that this was a moment that was actually celebrated throughout the Caribbean and Central America.
0: And of course, once Castro brought Cuba into an alliance with the Soviet Union, the pipeline between Cuban baseball and the American leagues uh, ended But the Caribbean remained and still remains a crucial source of uh, great players for American teams. Remind us about that
2: history. Sure. I mean, one of the things I was trying to do and imagine might be the case of a Dominican Republic-Cuban rivalry with the Dominican Republic being the representatives of capitalism and the Cubans of socialism, Uh, that kind of never really panned out. Cuba sort of stopped being a source of talent, and the Dominican Republic basically replaced it over a period of 20 years. So uh, I wanted, as a scholar of the Cold War, to be able to extend that into my own work and and into baseball itself. But baseball, again, was a very important part of American ideology. And it was something that, uh, through America's informal empire, was spread to the Caribbean and also to Asia as well, through America's informal empire, largely among other things through the YMCA and through various sporting goods uh, manufacturers.
0: Let's talk about boxing in the popular mind. Boxing determines who's the toughest man in the world. And boxing, of course, is an Olympic event. And in 1960, an American named Cassius Clay astounded the world with his boxing skills. And of course, he ended up Muhammad Ali stripped of his title and banned from the sport for refusing to fight in the Vietnam War. Let's talk about the place of Muhammad Ali in world sports.
2: Who had no quarrel with the Viet Cong. Yeah. But he was perceived as not being a Cold War figure until the time he refuses induction into the United States Army, and then says this famous quote that I just mentioned. So then at that point, he becomes a Cold War figure. And then there's another moment when he's involved in the Cold War, which you mentioned the boycotts, where the Carter administration, so things have changed by this time, in, inducts him or recruits him to travel through Africa to sell the boycott to uh, these newly independent or third world nations.
0: And I think we also have to talk about the media, an indispensable part of Cold War sports.
2: I think the media was in a symbiotic relationship in Cold War sports in that they simultaneously exacerbated the tensions, and because that sold newspapers and obviously helped television ratings. So I think there was a tendency, especially early on, to uh, emphasize the ways in which these two systems were utterly different, uh, that the Soviet sport athletes were machines, that the Americans were just happy amateurs, especially television later on, uh, is essential to giving people stories that they can either take to themselves or accept as being uh, definitive or defining of what the Cold War was about in the largest sense.
0: And there's one thing we have not yet talked about, gender.
2: A great deal of attention was paid to female sports from the very uh, beginning of sporting activity in the Soviet Union as early as the 1920s. When they emerge in 1952, the women's part of their, female part of their delegation is immensely successful. And of course, this is at a time when American women have been sort of forced out of the factories that they were in during the war, pigeonholed back into sort of suburban so-called traditional values. And so the gender roles that were evolving, if you can call it that in the United States, were challenged by these women Soviet athletes who were then perceived as Amazons as being muscular, as being somehow lesbian-like, and maybe even as men dressed up as women. So the kind of famous sobriquet of this was that there were these two sisters, the Tamara and Irina Press. Tamara in particular was very large, she was a weight thrower, and they were referred to not as the Press sisters, but as the Press brothers. Mm. So uh, you can see the misogyny that was generated by the fact that the Soviet Union has built some of their sorting success, literally, dare I say, on the backs of female athletes. But in fact, it was a great contribution. And ironically, that the major challenge to the Soviet Olympic, especially in track and field, uh, success came from poor African American women in the United States South, and specifically from Tennessee State University in Nashville.
0: The book we've been talking about is The Whole World Was Watching, Sport in the Cold War. And we've been speaking with one of the two co-editors, Robert Edelman. Bob, thanks for talking with us today. Pleasure. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about The Other Americans. That's the new novel by Leila Lalami. Her last novel, The Moors Account, won the American Book Award and was a Pulitzer finalist. She's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, Harper's, and The Guardian, and of course she's a columnist for The Nation. Leila Lalami, welcome back.
3: Thank you for having me. Well, America
0: is a country of immigrants, we all say, and the standard immigrant story is the American dream. Immigrant crosses the ocean, works really hard, becomes a success. The story in your new novel is a little
3: more complicated. (laughs) As life tends to be. So, the book begins with the death of a Moroccan immigrant on a desert road in a hit and run accident. And we don't know, there's a mystery about who's driving or whether it's an accident or, or something else. And the guy who is killed is a Moroccan immigrant. His name is Driss Gerawi, And he came to the United States in 1981 with his wife following some political trouble he got into in Morocco. And He moves to the desert in the Mojave, starts a business, and the whole idea for him was that he would come to this country with his wife and find safety and opportunity. And the first paragraph of the book is basically this accident where he dies. So the thing that he was searching for, he doesn't find. And then, so the book is told from the perspectives of multiple characters, including his daughter, who's a musician, who returns home at the beginning of the book because of this death. His wife, who's now his widow, his other daughter, the person who runs the business next door, you know, the detective who's investigating the story. But basically, all of these characters have some kind of a connection to him, and the book is told from their perspectives.
0: And the setting is not a big city immigrant neighborhood like East LA or the Bronx. Mm -hmm. Instead, you set it in a Small town in the Mojave Desert, already we are surprised. Mm.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, that sort of is the expectation. I mean, I was born and raised in Rabat, which is the capital of Morocco. And then I lived in London. And after that, I lived in Los Angeles. So I've always thought of myself as a big city person. It's a space that I feel comfortable in, the density, the noise and all of that, and the mix of people. But in writing this book, I had two reasons for setting it in the desert. One was just because I like the desert and I, yes, and I, you know, a few years ago we started going out to the Mojave actually and I just really fell in love with the landscape and with the silence and the peace and the quiet and the sort of the fauna and the flora. And I just, I also like the fact that it's the landscape that requires your attention. It's not something that reveals itself if you're kind of a careless onlooker, it requires you to pay attention in order to notice the life that is happening there. And the second reason is because it starts with this hit-and-run, I thought it would be much more interesting to set it in a small town where the people who lost this man, his family members, might at some point come across the perpetrator of this crime.
0: I guess we have to talk about Donald Trump and (laughs) the politics of immigration. Of course, he's made a big point about not wanting refugees from those (laughs) whole countries. He prefers... Blonde and blue-eyed immigrants from Norway, he said. In your book, that issue, the politics of immigration, is often in the background and certainly in our minds as readers.
3: Yeah. I, I was wondering how long it was going to take us to <laughs> before we got to Trump. You know, I have a theory that no conversation between any people in this country can last for long without Donald Trump coming well, we, up.
0: <laughs> we went four minutes. Yes.
3: that's <laughs> So it is a question that has come up as I've been promoting this book. But I started working on this book in 2014, long before Trump announced, and frankly, but long before I even knew of his prominence. I mean, I honestly knew nothing about the man other than he was a real estate billionaire and that he had a TV show that I'd never watched. So I didn't really know anything about him, and I was working on this story about this immigrant. I've had a longstanding interest in the subject, also because I'm an immigrant myself and I wanted to write a story about that sort of centers on this immigrant. The book basically explores immigration from multiple different perspectives. There's the couple who came here in 1981, but there's also one daughter who was brought here as a toddler And then one daughter who was born here. And it basically goes into their different experiences of immigration. One, even though she's born here, she still has the effects of that immigration are still felt upon her. And then there's another character who's an undocumented immigrant. So that's a completely different situation for him and and sort of the choices that he faces.
0: Let's talk about the cop a little bit this is not just an immigrant novel. It's also a detective story, mm-hmm. a mystery. Mm-hmm. And mysteries are a well-established genre <laughs> with their own you know, requirements and traditions. It's kind of a bold thing yeah. to step <laughs> across the line yes. into that territory. How hard was it for you to write about the cops and the detectives? Did you study Michael Connolly's <laughs> books? Uh, did you do, I don't know, ride-alongs with cops in the desert?
3: We have a saying in Morocco that goes something like this. He who has a tongue will never be lost. Which, the idea <laughs> being that as long as you ask questions, you will get answers. So I knew, you know, in working on this story, once I wanted to include an element of mystery that I had to basically do my homework. Fortunately, I'd I'd grown up. When I was young, like when I was in my teens, that's all I read was mysteries. So I actually was pretty well read from that, but I hadn't picked up a mystery in quite some time. So I wrote my friend Todd Goldberg, who's a crime writer, and I said, Todd, help me out, you know, give me a nice long reading list of what do you admire, what's going on, and so he gave me this long list, and I went home and I read and read and read all these crime writers And then I also did my own research. So as you mentioned, I went on a ride-along with a sheriff's deputy from the San Bernardino (laughs) County Sheriff's Department. Tell
0: us about the ride-along. What was that like? (laughs) It
3: was a long – it was 12 hours, and it was in the heat. And his name was Officer Campos. He was very nice and – We had all kinds of encounters during the day. And, of course, I had to remain in my seat and obey all of his directives, but I got to see a lot. I got to see, you know, like arrests and things like that that he had to do that day. But what I came away with, honestly, was how much law enforcement is being used basically as like social work. Like, for example, one time we stopped because the neighbors had called the police because they were worried about... This woman who they thought was feeling suicidal because she had lost her daughter and so they he had to come and basically pick her up and potentially take her for a psychiatric hold and Mm -hmm. so it was like this whole and you know that's obviously something that I would imagine a social worker would be involved in but instead it was the cops being called I also researched the logistics of a hit and run because I was very naive when I started working on this book I thought you know this guy is gonna die in a hit and run the car comes out Hits him, he dies, right? It shouldn't be complicated. But of course, it's complicated because what kind of a car, what kind of a collision would result in a fatality, uh, what clues might be left, uh, you know, yeah, all kinds of things, all kinds of things have to be sorted out. And um, I got really lucky because I was a friend of mine connected me with someone who's a scientist and who basically serves as an expert witness on these sort of hit and run trials. So I basically did a lot of homework is what I'm trying to say in order to write the the mystery.
0: I I want to ask about your uh, column for The Nation. You started writing it three years ago. That was before the election when we all thought Hillary would win and so you would be, you know, a Muslim immigrant columnist at America's Oldest Weekly with a democratic first woman president of America. Uh, and then after November 2016, you had a big new task. You were the immigrant Muslim columnist while Trump was the anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant president. I, I doubt that was the job you thought you were going to take on.
3: Well, I mean, I, I certainly, like many other people, thought that Clinton would win. But having said that, I do think that it's not just simply a question of anti-immigrant, but just like immigrant, because I don't mm-hmm. necessarily think that um, Hillary Clinton's approach was a progressive approach on immigration. So if you look, for example, at what made Trump stand out from among his his fellow Republican hopefuls, it was the immigration ban on Muslims, but it was also building the wall, right? So, but the wall didn't, the wall was there. It wasn't something that started with Trump. It started with Clinton. I mean, Clinton Mm -hmm. started building the first wall. It was in San Diego and Tijuana. It was 13 miles of fencing. And the George W. Bush administration expanded that to another 700 miles. And then those those fences and walls were built during the bush administration and the obama administration so what i guess what i'm trying to say is there is a sense of continuity between both democratic and republican administrations on immigration and while his trump's rhetoric is just hateful and 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 repugnant we have to recognize that continuity and when we talk about immigration it's not a question of like Trump is bad and Clinton is good, but more of like how this immigration policy that has been going on for more than 25 years, how has it helped the country? Has it helped the country? Has it hurt the country? And what exactly are its effects on people?
0: You and I live on the west side of Los Angeles. You live in Santa Monica. <laughs> this is the most you know, liberal, democratic, anti-Trump place in America, pretty much. There's only one precinct in all of LA County where Trump won, it was in Beverly Hills. But I wonder, you are an immigrant from Morocco, you're an American citizen, you're a Muslim. Do you worry about your safety?
3: Well, I feel duty-bound to remind listeners that Santa Monica, however liberal it may be, produced Stephen Miller, who went to the high school some years ago (laughs) (laughs) that my child now attends. So, you know, I think, again, this idea that it's everything, like that it's either or, like we really do have to question that. And just yesterday, the Washington Post uh, revealed that Stephen Miller had been counseling the president to you know basically stage these highly public highly visible mass arrests of immigrants and their families and their kids in their homes and the only reason it, they haven't done it because they've been working on it for a year. The only reason it hasn't happened yet is because Kirsten Nielsen said, well, I don't have enough, the logistics of it, I don't have enough beds. And I don't know what to do with the paperwork, because some of them have US citizens, what do I do? And so it was because of that, that she was forced out. And as far as like, living in Santa Monica, this goes back to what I'm saying, you know, it's yes, I feel safe on a day-to-day basis in my community. But I never let myself feel too safe because I know, based on the example of Stephen Miller, that there is this racist next door, that there is this white nationalist who could be living next door. And I mean, just yesterday when I was on Twitter and I linked to this Washington Post story, all factual, you know, I wasn't even editorializing or saying what I thought. I just said what the headline was basically saying. And some rando on Twitter says, do you have your green card (laughs) to me? I mean, and this is something that happens all the time, like go back to your country and things like that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I never allow myself to kind of forget about that, of that virulently anti-immigration strain that is part and parcel of American history.
0: Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's (laughs) news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get. From Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You just got back from a book festival in Minneapolis. I did. And Minnesota has the highest proportion of immigrants and refugees of any state. I looked up where they're from. Number one source of immigrants to Minnesota is Mexicans. Second, people from India. Third, Somalis like Ilhan Omar. Mm-hmm. Fourth, Hmong from Laos and lots of them, of course, are refugees. What was your book event in Minneapolis like? Did any of this come up there?
3: Oh, how interesting that you asked me that question, because while I was there, I had to do an interview, and the person who interviewed me is Moroccan. And the first thing she said to me, because it was her first time in Minnesota, she said, I don't understand. Like, this is supposed to be a melting pot. People are supposed to be mixed, but they don't mix. Like, everybody's in their own little, you know, area. But the event was fabulous. It was very well attended and the conversation was really great. So it was a conversation with Tommy Orange, who did a book called There, There, and it was moderated by Joseph Farag.
0: Last question, the idea of the immigrant writer, you know, it's such a generic term. On the other hand, the idea of the immigrant is so central to our politics and our culture today. Do you want to be called an immigrant writer?
3: I want to be called a good writer. <laughs> yes. That's what I want to be called. And if you want to add anything else beyond that, as long as you put good in there, <laughs> then that's what matters to me. Leila Lalami, her
0: wonderful new novel is The Other Americans. Leila, thanks so much for Thank talking Thank you very much today. for having me. We spoke with Leila last May. Her book was published in paperback this week. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to TrumpWatchPodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.